Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and Coinos Hermes. I am delighted with my guest today, very excited to have Mona Sobani. She is a cognitive neuroscientist, an author, and an entrepreneur. A former research scientist at the University of Southern California, she holds a doctorate in neuroscience from the University of Southern California, and she completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Vanderbilt University with the MacArthur Foundation Law and Neuroscience Project. She is the author of a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. It's called Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a Neuroscientist's Discovery of the Ineffable Mysteries of the Universe. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Vox, and other media outlets. She lives in Los Angeles. Mona, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. And I really did enjoy your book. I, I thought at first that it was going to be a kind of a, a, another run-of-the-mill uh, example. I mean, these things are starting to proliferate where people are reviewing some of the anomalous phenomena in the universe. But it was really an enjoyable read. So I, I encourage everybody to check it out. And what's wonderful is the the particular range and the personal experiences that you, you didn't just say, well, okay, there's some interesting phenomena out here, but it, it was such a broad scope. And even considering things that are interesting to me as a philosopher, looking at the philosophy of science itself, which maybe we'll get into a little bit today, and that it's so very relevant that in uh, your field of neuroscience and in science in general, there is a, a kind of high... Um, a, a a high alertness and dismissiveness to anything that might be characterized as woo-woo. It's a funny thing that in, in uh, one survey that, uh, that I saw where they were looking at different academic departments and asking, well, you know, who's most open to these sorts of anomalous phenomena? The philosophers were the least open. So, And it's ironic that if I wrote the same book, it wouldn't carry the same cachet, even though we are, uh, my discipline is the one that is the most, really, must defend the materialist paradigm. So oh, wow. your story, though, is a story of a kind of uh, um, a, a big conversion experience, in a way, if we could call it that, which is such a hallmark of philosophical life. But maybe you could just talk a little bit about where you were in terms of your worldview and what that, what that meant to you at the time, to what, what it would be like to consider the kinds of things we're about to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, st I started off very scientific materialists so uh, it's how they train us in science but it's also just western culture um i think uh i, I talk about this a little uh, don't talk i don't know but i started off college with a little more wonder and awe for the mysteries of the universe but then by the time i finished graduate school um not only because it was science but also because it was neuroscience they really train you that all meaning is created in the brain, that it comes from us, that there's no uh, meaning, you know, external tasks. There's no inherent meaning in the, in the external environment. Uh, and that, you know, everything is 
random, dead, and meaningless. And our brains are coincidence detectors and storytellers. So they are looking for coincidences and then they're looking for a way to pull it together and create a story. So by the end of graduate school, I learned to not trust the brain, not not to trust our, you know, our own experiences, our subjective experiences, and definitely not to think that um, anything magical or spiritual or mystical could exist. Uh, I was pretty arrogant and um, very uh, opposed to those kinds of things. It's really interesting when, when you say, I mean, what an effect that this has on us, that science instead of creating intimacy with experience, can create a disconnection where we're now not trusting our experience and at the same time, an arrogance that still I do know. (laughs) What a a multifaceted situation to be in, right? Yeah, that was was the interesting one I came up against in the whole um, experience. (laughs) This whole like worldview flip was, um, I'm so certain that I know, but then we can't trust our perceptions. And, you know, so yeah, I just, it's just uh, the absurdity of that just became obvious to me over the course of the experience. Yeah. And, and what is interesting too, is, is that, so here you have this deep seated paradigm and there's a kind of, it's interesting to me that you, you do talk about a little bit issues that I would connect with philosophy of science. But what's what's not stated overtly is that science is always the servant of philosophy. It's just that most scientists don't want to confess their metaphysical speculations, or they take them to just be reality, mm-hmm. as opposed to asking the question, wait a second, I'm, if, if I'm doing science in service of some kind of philosophical view of what a human being is, what reality is, what is that view? And is it a good one? But there's a just, it's just, here it is, it's as if, well, no, that this is just reality, and we're proceeding along as, yes. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I, well, I'm not, I wasn't a student of philosophy, I was actually very turned off, I turned off by philosophy, I wasn't interested in it at all, and um, so I wasn't even aware that this was like, this was an issue or a thing, and that was one of the surprising things of when I started reading and exploring in these topics and this came up that hey this um this thing that science is based on is a philosophy of you know an, a bunch of assumptions about the true nature of reality but that those are just assumptions and then looking beyond the field of science finding there was all this dialogue and discourse and not no agreement on what is that a fundamental and, and then that was shocking you know and then I thought oh dear we don't even know we don't actually know we've just decided that we're going to go with this one and we're basing all of our science on it but if it's wrong then a lot of things are, are wrong but yeah that's why I started when I talk to other neuroscientists or I always say like you should really read things other than just neuroscience because there's a lot more to know. And um, a lot of the assumptions that we make blindly in science, uh, you wouldn't make uh, quite as blindly if you, you know, explored philosophy and a little bit more of the humanities. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's something that I've heard of Dean Radin. Uh, I interviewed Dean Radin and I was asking him, you know, what, what do you, what, what would you tell young, young scientists? And he said, well, study philosophy. So you understand that it, it is undergirding what we're doing. And it's interesting too, this, um, 
You're talking about a shift, and you write in your book about the,、uh, the way that there is also an identification process. This is something that people don't always realize that, that how invested our sense of self is in our jobs and in the kinds of views of the world that our jobs then have to get us to accept. You know, if we are engaged in certain kind of capitalist activity, we have to believe that certain things about people—that they're motivated by money, that we're Homo economicus. And so, similarly, if you're in the sciences, there's a kind of identification. I am a scientist, and and there's a lot of levels to that. Look, I'm smart. I have a PhD. I know what the brain is, and I'm a materialist. And it's interesting how that, for you, you were able to sense what a confrontation with the problems of identity that is. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? You frame it in the book as the old me versus the new me. The old me who had these views, and then oh, something、oh. comes and confronts it. And and we could just push it away, but you you turn toward it. Yeah, I mean, it took me a lot of struggle and a lot of time. I guess not that long, but it felt like forever. It felt like an eternity to come to that insight. But、um, yeah, I was having a hard time. I was opening up to these to these new ideas. Right, I'm like, all right, let me explore a philosophy of spirituality.、Um, let me have these experiences. These, you know, let me get some readings. So I'm opening up. And then I start feeling like,、um, honestly, it was like my nervous system was on fire. Like I was uncomfortable all the time, and I was、um, frantic in a way, like internally frantic. And I didn't know why. You know, I mean, I I knew why because I was exploring these topics, but I didn't know why. <laughs> like, oh, so what if I'm being open minded? What's the big deal? But it was a physiological reaction, and then.、Um, It it I I think I mean I sort of came to the inside of my own, but I also sort of had a psychic tell me, psychic、um, a psychic psychotherapist tell me. But part of it was、um, was I had been practicing mindfulness for a while, so I did start noticing my thoughts. And before this journey, like I I didn't even stop to notice my own thoughts, right? But with with I started really taking note of them as I was going through the journey, and that's when I. Found myself like if I was crying on the floor、uh, because I'm surrounded by books on reincarnation or something. Like I'd be like, "Why am I crying?" And I'd be like, "I'm crying. Oh my god, I'm the kind of person who reads this stuff now." And then you know, old me would have just probably wallowed in that. <laughs> with my new skill, my new mindfulness skills, I was trying to exercise. I was like, okay, well, well, what does that mean, right? And I just kept asking, what does that mean? Why?、Um, with every thought I had, and so with that, I just kept pushing in. I thought, okay, what does that mean? What kind of person is that?、Um, and it's somebody who's, you know, I'm like open minded, and then the other side of it was like、uh, stupid. <laughs> and that's when I realized I was like, oh yeah, that's one of my fundamental. Beliefs, I guess, my conditioned beliefs is that anybody who believes in anything that's not science, hard science based, or that is spiritual or stuff is stupid. And so then I was crying because I thought I was stupid now, and so I had to,、uh, and then you know go through what does that mean?、Um, why did I think I was smart? You know, I did all these kinds of like mental exercises, exercises, and、um, part of it was, oh yeah, I'm a, I mean, I'm a scientist. Why did I go into science? Part of it was. To understand the world, but if you're, you know, it's really hard to do. But be honest with yourself. Why did you go for a PhD in science? Because I love saying I'm a neuroscientist. You know, like I love the respect that comes with it, the authority 
And uh, I had to just really own that and face it. Um, and it was hard. <laughs> it's interesting that you you have this um, this deep discomfort in a way. I mean, there's I mean, there's so much that's uh, that's alive in that in that story. One that you're you're there and you're having a, an intense emotional experience because there's an identity issue, which is I I am now the kind of person who reads this material, whereas before I would have been the kind of person who just would have dismissed it with an eye roll without reading it. And it, and it reminds me of a, an interaction that Rupert Sheldrake had. You, you know who he is now. Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> Which you might not have before. Yeah. But, you know, he was friends with Dan Dennett going back to when they were in, uh, what was it Oxford or Cambridge? I think they're both Cambridge boys. Um, and, uh, you know, so they've known each other for all these years. And, and Sheldrake says, you know, to get into, that's the equivalent of Ivy League here. Dennett's a well-known philosopher. And so they were having some discussion about some anomalous uh, uh, phenomena. And Sheldrake said, look, I'd be happy to debate you publicly. And, well, let's, and, and, and Dennett said, yeah, sure, fine. And he said, well, let me give you, you your time to, to you, you, you go back through the literature. And he said, well, I haven't read the literature. And he said, well, then let me give you time to read it. I don't need to read it. And Sheldrake yeah. thought, well, now how are we going to have a debate? You, you yeah. haven't even read the material. And uh, that reminds me too of uh, you know Schmeidler's uh, distinction. Did you have you ever heard of the the sheep and goats? Oh yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. Which is a biblical reference, mm -hmm. um, but but Schmeidler had this idea that there are some people who, and now I don't know that she framed it in terms of of existential identity issues. You know that that we really. Um, come to identify as a certain kind of person, but at any rate, you, it's implicit there. And and I know it sounds weird to think of you know the, the sheep or the mindless people who because that's what we we, we say sheeple you know or the. So I, I wish she had not put it right. that way, but it was a biblical reference actually because it meant that the sheep were the ones listening to the divine, and the goats mm -hmm. were too stubborn to to serve the divine what i mean we you know what we don't have to speak in in religious terms but it is a religious reference in spiritual terms it is right. to say those who are willing to hear the call of their soul or the great mystery or whatever it might be versus those who are stubbornly resistant to it mm -hmm. and so her proposal was for those who don't know this you 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 do but that uh, certain kinds of people would not encounter anomalous phenomena because any time they would get close to it, something in them would steer them in another direction. So the discomfort that you were sitting with is the very thing that makes a goat a goat and keeps them away, away from it ordinarily. And you had yeah. to go through the unpleasantness of being with a discomfort in yourself in order to see if you could face a, 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 a greater truth. Yeah, yeah. And it was... Um... Before this, I was very, I was not aware of, um, you know, all the literature connecting mind and body. And um, even the more recent uh, somatic psychology, things that are becoming repopularized. Um, I wasn't familiar with any of that, but I became familiar through this experience because um, I started looking into it after this. But I just realized I was like, yeah, why am I, why is my nervous system on fire? Like, why am I so uncomfortable? Um and I, I wasn't even that in touch with my with my body, but 
at the time, but it was, you know, so pr- pronounced that I, I couldn't, I, I could, I couldn't not notice it. So like, even when I would sit in meditation, like it was just too much, um, it would help me calm down for a while, but it was not working. And I remember thinking something is wrong, yeah. like with me, <laughs> something is wrong. So yeah. So, and then and I thought, well, I have to fig- you know, figure out what's wrong. Right. And it's not just in this case, because of the way that the culture is constructed, I mean, this is part, you could say, of the immune system of the pattern of insanity. To the extent that you have uh, a, an unhealthy culture, a culture that's not sane, it can't perpetuate itself without some kind of immune system that keeps out anything that would destabilize it. Mm-hmm. And so we have to have educational systems, for instance, that train scientists in certain ways so that you don't, you're, you're minimizing anything that would be too far outside of what's accepted. And that in a larger sense, that's also holding together structures that are political and economic. And, and so it's very similar. There's a, this is a parallel that you don't necessarily bring out, but I think it's important to recognize that we are idiots if we think that, say, ESP might be real. And we're also idiots. In fact, we might even be bigger idiots if we think that capitalism is not the best system that you can possibly have. These are very related things. It's only idiots would think mm-hmm. that because look, if you don't have capitalism, it's Stalin, and if you if you don't believe if you don't accept materialism, then you know when someone gets shot, you know uh, if there's a mass shooting, you're going to run out there with crystals and try to fix them, as opposed mm-hmm. to taking them to a ho- these are the things that we get right, painted. Yeah. So you're it's part of this kind of subtle form of control that you self censor. You're the one. No one's standing there telling you that you're stupid. You're feeling. Yeah. I'm stupid. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting how it works. It's very similar to Chomsky and Herman and their analysis of, of the media that, um, you know, first of all, if we think that the New York Times is the craziest liberal thing there is, then there's not going to be anything more liberal than that. And secondly, whenever you're writing for the New York Times, you're never going to have the sense that someone's censoring you and telling you that you can't criticize the system in certain ways. You just wouldn't have the job that you have. Right. So you don't get a job as a cognitive neuroscientist, you know, already pretty much in line. Yeah, kind of. But I think also what with my um, with my uh, sorry, my personal project that I launched when I went to interview uh, my colleagues to see because I got curious, like, do any of them believe in an uh, have they ever experienced anomalous phenomena? Are they spiritual? Are they religious? Like, I had no idea. We never talked about that stuff. Yeah, I found that they were way more um, open. First of all, they all had experiences in some way or another. And uh, some, you know, they were more. I mean, if you honestly, if you're well trained in science, you'll always say, science can't measure everything and we don't know all the answers, which is what all of them said. Um, and then it, it's just like that the tension arises when you bring up something specific that the culture has stigmatized and then everyone gets uncomfortable yes. and then they back away. Or, I mean, in private, like I t- talk about in the book, in private, people will talk about anything and they'll admit anything. But if you put us on a stage in front of people, <laughs> then it becomes a little bit different. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so it's it's actually a lot of people that go into neuroscience. I mean, they you know are really interested in human behavior and um, come in with a lot of true curiosities. And a lot of them are very philosophical. You know, that's why I choose neuroscience over other branches of science. I think, but um, yeah, you don't get you don't get fed that you don't that doesn't get nur- nurtured sure. in 
graduate school. So, and then you just become busy. And so sometimes that falls to the wayside, unfortunately. And that's sort of what happened. I think with me, like I came in with um, some amount of, you know, awe and wonder for the universe, but by the end of graduate school, um, yeah, it's kind of like beaten out of you. And you, and it really is like a transformation of the way you think and the way you look at the world and you start categorizing things and breaking it down into data and looking for correlations and your mind turns into a literal computer and how would I do statistics, statistics on like this thing. And you just, that's how you start operating. And that was another interesting thing. I didn't write about it in the book, but one thing that over the course of this whole transformation is watching the way that I think change greatly. Mm-hmm. And so um, like when I started it, it was very scientific and very categorical and very data driven and very numbers. And that's why I approached the problem initially with like, what does the science say? Where's the proof? Where's the mechanism? And then, you know, by the end, <laughs> or actually it's not the end, right? I'm still in this, but um, then I started making room for um quality assessments and mythology and some, you know, symbolic meaning and things like that. And then the way I think completely changed. And so, and I'm sure it's continuing to evolve, but that was a really interesting thing that happened along the way that I, I didn't even notice how scientific and mechanistic my thinking had become. Um, and, and actually a good example of that is I used to read a lot of fiction when I entered graduate school, like fiction was my favorite thing to read. And by the time I left, I had stopped reading fiction. Uh, <laughs> I just read so much science. Yeah. 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 Well, that, it, I mean, it's interesting on, a, um, again, there's just a lot in what you're saying. One of the things, of course, I, I want to clarify that there are a few things that work in the, in the science, the way science indoctrinates uh, people who become scientists. There are people like uh, Richard Dawkins and Neil deGrasse Tyson, no question that they, uh, and Dan Dennett, who is a philosopher actually, but um, they do have very firm commitments and would not be afraid to tell you in private that they think that you're crazy, right? But then you you have this other issue, which is what Thomas Kuhn, the historian of science, pointed out that the the, the education mm-hmm. of the scientist proceeds in a dogmatic fashion. And he was quite comfortable saying that because he it, it from his view, and of course there's a big question of, of what the, what what this means historically be in, in the present. Historically in the past, if we look at the past, Kuhn was saying that dogmatism clearly allows for innovation in science. It's an open question whether or not that um, it, it would be better to not have the dogmatism. But what he was saying is that scientists mm-hmm. are trained in, in the, what he called normal science. You are giving paradigms to learn from and master, and you stay working in the framework that you're given until essentially science, mm-hmm. your field, or the group of scientists have a sort of nervous breakdown and decide that there's, they have to account for data that they've been suppressing or calling noise or whatever it might be. And that allows them to become creative. But at that point, they're kind of, they're not really doing science the way they were trained anymore. There's something else that has happened. And so it could be that we need a paradigm shift, but it also could be that part of what is missing here is pluralism. Um, An interesting thinker I really recommend, I'd actually like to, reminds me I should reach out to him and see if I can interview him, is Hasek Chang. Have you ever heard of Hasek Chang? No. He's super, super interesting. But one of the things that he looked at is the, the shift from the phlogiston theory 
to the uh, theory of Lavoisier. This is a big moment in the history of science where Lavoisier says, no, there's no such thing as phlogiston, and he comes up with this oxygen idea. And Hasek Chang says, you know, the thing is, I when you study the actual history of it, I think you'll have a very hard time believing that Lavoisier just had a better case, that it was just, oh, scientifically, it made more sense. And he said, no, I, I don't think so. And so he goes over it very carefully. And then he shows that, it, that there were all these sorts of experiments that that have been lost to us, and that if you imagine the phlogiston theory had hung on, we might have advanced, uh, say, 50 or even 100 years ahead of of what we did, because mm -hmm. Lavoisier is at the end of the, you know, of yeah. course, unfortunately, he was guillotined, so he's the end of the uh, 1700s. <laughs> and then from, from that time to Thompson um, is like 100 years. And Hasek Cheng makes a pretty clear case that if, even if phlogiston had just been allowed to be around, and people would have, instead of just had this dominant view where it has to be this way, that we might have made a, a, an advancement. So, so part of what might help here is if scientists were to allow pluralism. And the joke that Chang often makes to illustrate this, which I think is such a wonderful one, is he says, you know, two, you, you got two, uh, two boys who are in school, and their, their teachers bring them, call them into the principal's office, and they say, each of you was asked to write an essay, and you both wrote an essay on the family dog. And the essays are exactly the same. So clearly you cheated. And the older brother says, no, we didn't. It's the same dog. <laughs> so I don't know if that makes sense, but the idea is why would we assume, we certainly don't assume that two people writing an essay on the same dog should write the same essay. Why would we assume that two people studying the brain right. should be using the same materials, the same hypotheses, the same machines, or whatever it might be, the same approach, and that they're only going to get this one same description, as opposed to considering other possibilities? Yeah, you mean like the background... Um philosophy also or just it could be right because yeah, yeah. Be because you could have a you, you know if you look at the copenhagen interpretation that's a whole philosophy about how reality works and how science is done bohm has a very different philosophy you get the right. same predictive results yes. but you have a very different view of what the cosmos is and what it means and and even Chang argues, for instance, that there's nothing wrong with, like, if you are trained as a physicist, you have to learn Newtonian mechanics. You also have to learn quantum mechanics. You also have to learn relativity theory. Now, these are completely different. Mm -hmm. And you would not use quantum physics to launch a rocket mm -hmm. to the moon. It would be ridiculous. But you've got three very different paradigms in an important sense. Why is it that we find that so hard to accommodate in other fields? And so why couldn't the, the neuroscientists be at least allowed to pursue something that is not within or even encouraged. I mean, that would be the ideal case. Uh, um, but it's just one, one yeah, way of thinking um, about how limiting it can be. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, they could, they, I was going to say initially that um, it would make it, so as it stands right now, there's one assumption about the philosophy, right? It's just it's scientific materialism. So that yes. never needs to be stated. Um, and so it makes it easier uh, for, even though the model doesn't ultimately work to explain all classes of evidence, but it makes it easier uh, because you never have to qualify your experiment by saying this is what this is 
whatever our, our interpretation is based on this uh, philosophical understanding of reality. Right. But you're right. I mean, they could add that as a, um, you know, like a onto the paper, like this is what, <laughs> like the, our interpretation is using that, you know, or they could even do an exercise of interpreting it with a few different philosophies. Yeah. That would be uh, even more interesting. Um, well, I'm, I'm organizing a, well, I'm trying to organize. We'll see if uh, we can do it just to pull it off at the largest neuroscience conference. We have one every year. I, I actually stopped going, but uh, my collaborator and I wanted to organize a panel on alternative models of consciousness. So it's kind of addressing that of like, yes, we have these mainstream models in neuroscience, which are great, you know, whatever they do the best they can in explaining the evidence that they take into consideration, but there's all these new models being proposed that do use other, um, you know, philosophical foundations for reality and um, being published in academic journals. So uh, we want to have a panel on that, but we'll see if they'll uh, approve it. Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. And it's because it's interesting how I don't think this was ever explained to you as, as I would read it as a philosopher, that, that it is metaphysical speculation that what science acts like it's doing is excluding metaphysics, but yet there is this sheer speculation that the metaphysics of the universe are this thing called matter, which we haven't even figured out what it is yet. We don't know what that is. You know, like dark matter enters five seconds ago on the scientific spectrum of things, and we suddenly realize we don't know what we're talking about. But that on top of that, that we're already assuming metaphysically that every new bit of data will further confirm the, the metaphysical view that we have. I mean, that's just the ground assumption because nobody's trying to say, well, let's let's test against it. Let's see if we can overturn it. Let's see if there's a way to overturn m- this metaphysical speculation. But you actually give e- evidence, and maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about this, of um, Kepler, not the old Kepler, but the new Kepler. Uh, uh, is it uh, Joachim Kepler? Is that his first name? Wa- Joachim, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, maybe you could talk about there because there is a, a philosophical view, a different metaphysical view that actually gives you empirical prediction that you that right. you could maybe you could lay that out yeah, his, that, his view. It's a really cool. Was, yeah, he does it. Um, he uses to call it cosmopsychism, I think. So, I, if I man, it's been a while since I looked at that, <laughs> even though I put it in the book. But his, um, you know, the general assumption in neuroscience is that consciousness arises from the brain. Um, and that memories are stored in the brain, even though um, memory and consciousness are are really difficult topics to study in neuroscience. Like we haven't actually nailed nailed them down. So um, I found this paper. I think I went to just search when I was writing the book. Like, are there any other models of consciousness? Like, whatever. And I put a bunch of different philosophies in, and I found this paper by Joaquin Kepler. Um, he wrote a, a bunch of papers actually that were just really interesting. Uh, first proposing cosmopsychism as like a alternative philosophy and then saying, um, you know, what if there is a, a field, something like um, it could be electromagnetic, I think he argued in that paper, but it's something like the zero point field that just runs through everything. Um, but that is comprised of, um, I don't think he called it uh, explicitly consciousness, but <laughs> he describes the field as having two components. So one would be physical matter, which we are familiar with, and the other is a phenomenal, a phenomenological component. And that was kind of that 
the thing that brings quality to consciousness, right? That like thing that we can't measure, that we can't derive into matter and break it up into parts and reduce it. Um, so, you know, it's this, that there's both of these things in the field um, and that our brains are receivers that interact with the field on a constant basis and download these um, phenomenal states and also, you know, whatever else. And so he actually um, puts, it went through like the entire literature of neuroscience and, uh, he used the larger scale electrical communication like that happens in the brain. So parts of the brain have to coordinate with other parts uh, when they're doing stuff, like they go into resonance with each other. So he he went through the literature, um, the memory and consciousness literature specifically, and proposed this model to say, oh, when it's when it's in this state, when these brain regions are in this frequency and they're aligned together, like maybe that's when it lines up with the field downloads you know, a, a phenomenal state, whatever, a state of consciousness. Um, and then it's also capable of uploading. And that's why, that's how he explains like how everything ends up back in the field is because there's also, as in addition to downloading, there's an uploading function. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting because, yeah, we, well, I mean, I haven't seen many theories like that published in peer review. I think it was Frontiers of Psychology, which is a pretty, yeah. mainstream uh, psychology journal and um and since then there's been a few other uh, similar papers published by different scientists so that are similar like they, they propose some sort of electro i think it's i think usually it's electromagnetic but it doesn't have to be it could be a quantum field it, it varies but depending on the theory but um yeah just saying instead of our brains producing consciousness that they are uh receivers or that they interact with something that maybe we can't measure yet or maybe it's like whatever uh, depends on theory but yeah interacts and that that's how you so you're seeing these new models being proposed that try to account for other classes of um of evidence that's come up and i think especially with actually i think i think i just read a newer paper with with joaquin kepler and he he uh, linked up with one of the psychedelic researchers and they were they were explaining them um a similar model in regards to ayahuasca evidence and so kind of explaining trying to explain like a psychedelic experience in that way um and it was actually yes in that paper i remember i highlighted this and like circled it and i made a note to come back because they explicitly say in the introduction um they make a whole point in saying like a thing about science and saying like yes we we believe in evidence that you can measure and this and that but we write this paper with you know um acknowledging that we don't know everything in science and that in the history of science there have been things that have been dismissed because we couldn't measure them and then we could measure them later like microscopes being able to see germs or whatnot so they kind of make this whole case in the beginning to say we're going to speculate <laughs> a little bit in this paper, bear with us, but saying just because we can't measure or we don't have evidence for things right now doesn't mean that we won't in the future. And, you know, th these are our thoughts on it. And I just thought like, it was so fantastic to finally read that in a paper. I thought it was really, really great. <laughs> so what I was thinking again about how interesting it is that we, you have a clear indication that there's something important about resonance. And at the same time, the idea of vibration and energy and resonance is uh, um, so pervasive and so 
casually used as to become almost useless in some ways. But there's something there that's important, and I just wanted to uh, ask the question of whether you had seen James Pang's research or Yibin Shu's research on uh, resonance in the brain. This is kind of like a really new. This this just came out in the past month or two. So we have the kind of habitual idea that the brain uh, produces mind by means of what happens in the connectome, by means of the, these, we have these atomized bits, neurons and other, other support structures, and they fire and talk to each other and they're focused in centers where there are particular things that might be associated with them. Uh, we're not like totally facultative, this thing only does this, but we understand there could be multiple functions. But nonetheless, it's what you could call a connectome approach. And what these uh, two different teams of researchers doing two different things did, especially Peng is much more going head to head with the connectome view. Uh, what they showed is that it is resonance uh, in the brain, that it's much more like uh, as if the old view is looking at a vibrating violin string and trying to explain what's happening by looking at a point on the string rather than understanding that it's the whole string. These are mm-hmm. the so-called eigenmodes, that, there, that there's something about the geometry, the topography of the brain that is responsible for uh, explaining how brain produces mind. And so they went through all kinds of, uh, I mean, this was like a huge, huge, it's a landmark paper. You probably would find yeah. it really exciting. I can share it with you. And then, oh, yeah, send it to me. I was trying to like write it down. But yeah, James Pang yeah. at Monash University in Australia. Then the other group, they what they found were these kinds of, um, they find they found spiraling resonance patterns over over the surface of the brain that were clearly doing something that was not being explained simply by the connectome view alone. Okay. And then a, a, another study that's not exactly related to this, but is super interesting, and that one was about, um, that was done in Estonia, um, and they were looking at uh, the death process mm. and finding uh, brain activity, of course, beyond when you, you would think it should be there and wondering what that means. There's an interesting documentary on the death process that I think you'll probably be fascinated with that's called Tukdam. And that's uh, tukdam is a Tibetan word for when an advanced meditator is trained in tukdam. A lot of advanced spiritual uh, practitioners will know when they're going to die. And so the practitioners of tukdam will, uh, especially if they live in contemporary uh, setting, they will tell their family, I don't want to go to the hospital, I'm going to die. Then they'll start meditating more and they'll try to be in a meditative pose and in a meditative state when death happens. And it's fascinating because if you go in there, of course, we understand that body decomposition surely can vary. But in these conditions, which is in India when it's hot, there really should be decomposition and these bodies are still, and the people look like they're just alive and meditating. It's really amazing, but they've been I've dead for like those. a week. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. And the Dalai Lama has, you know, for years tried to collaborate with the scientists because their, their attitude is very dismissive um, because they're sure that the whole reincarnation story, you know, you guys are, you know, let's grow up. And, uh, so they, but they, he always said, I'm happy to run tests because we are an empirical philosophy. We're not, we know this is not a philosophy of dogmatic belief. Yes. So they, but they could never coordinate an advanced practitioner dying and getting the machinery there because it's like some yogi in the cave yeah. or, you know, whatever. So they found a guy in Taiwan and this actually made mainstream news, although probably not the New York Times, but this guy in Taiwan was a monk 
and a scholar monk, you know, and so they, when he died, the alert went out and they sent, you know, and the, you're thinking it's dumb because he's in the morgue for two weeks when the EEG machine gets there <laughs> and they say, yeah. well, we're going to measure him. And so everyone's having a laugh, but there was yeah. faint electrical activity. And two weeks in a morgue means zero. (laughs) But there was a measurable activity using an EEG machine when there should be nothing. Nothing like a living person, but something there. And this monk was was supposedly had been instructed to try to linger. And the same thing with some of these others in in Tukdam. But anyway, so... Uh, I guess we won't talk about those studies then because you haven't seen them, but it, it is interesting to see that also what that illustrates is even what we think we're we're so certain about, we don't know. I mean, here is this phenomenon, uh, or, well, let's just say a, hi- a hypothesis connected to measurable phenomena um, that is not part of the explanatory model that we have. We don't, uh, this, you know, the explanatory model doesn't have resonance in it. There was also, um, of course, right, the Hungarian yeah. guy, uh, Jorgi, is it, uh, uh, what was his name, where he wrote about rhythms in the brain. Um, it's uh, really... I don't know that one, but I, oh, go ahead. No, Sorry. no, please. Yeah, yeah, go. I was just going to, yeah, I, I, there, there was, um, I'm trying to remember her name. Um, there was a researcher, a scientist who was looking at this um, and she, they came up, oh, I did put in the book, the connectome harmonic. They were looking at resonance in a way um, and she's still doing it. And she's looking at um, a range of states of consciousness, like from mm-hmm. anesthesia to psychedelics to normal yeah. states. Um, so I do think, and you know, when I was in graduate school, uh, I remember being disenchanted with fMRI research because of this reason, because I thought this is ridiculous. We're doing linear regression on the brain. Uh, the, the can't, it can't possibly, it's like the most complicated uh, thing in the universe as that we know of so far. And we're using linear regression and like, we keep identifying the same regions active for everything. And I was just so sort of disenchanted by it. Cause I was like, what is this even telling us? It's like nothing. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm glad to see the field moving towards other theories because what we have is so insufficient. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about where we both have an interest. We have we have a lot of like strange, interesting resonance. I lived in L.A. for some time. I lived in the Valley for a little while, um, and, but then Hollywood. Uh, you're on the west side now, which is where my favorite sushi restaurant used to be. Um, and we both have a kind of horse connection, and we were both very co- committed materialists. When I started out, I started out in philosophy. I actually started out wanting to be Nikola Tesla when I was a little kid and, you know, building motors out of shoeboxes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, he was like a hero figure to me. And then, and then I thought, well, no, I, I got, I got interested in philosophy. And then I thought, well, but science tells us about reality. And so I kind of had the view that that is the exact wrong view, that philosophy is the servant of of the sciences mm-hmm. and that you go to the sciences to find out about reality. So I spent a lot of time in this very dismissive materialistic uh, paradigm. But the thing is, I was still I was still so drawn to philosophy as it was. Mm-hmm as it more rarely is now, unless you're you're talking to somebody who's in one of the more active traditions. Like, there aren't Platonists today. Um, the school fell apart, you know. But there are people who still practice in, in Buddhist philosophy or Taoist mm-hmm. philosophy. So those mm-hmm. lines are still alive. And so then we know that philosophy is a way of life. If you read Plato, right. and now we have scholarship to show this, he felt that it was a way of life, and it was about a, a, a transformative experience. Mm-hmm. And of course, Plato had been part of a society steeped in using psychedelics 
And so he had t- taken part of the mysteries, which we now we, we believe to have been a psychedelic, tr- hugely transformative experience. And part of what he was trying to do, it seems, is to understand how we could facilitate that kind of transformation and make it matter in the culture. Because there was far more, shall we say, um, a, a permeation of psychedelic experience in in that culture than there is in ours. I mean, we think, oh, it's psychedelic renaissance. And here's Plato saying, look, you can have everybody take the psychedelics and you'll still have Donald Trump. I mean, you might pray that he's going to see, you know, he'll see the light. Right. But so yeah. what? what is that? And I think that's part of what you're looking at, because both of us have a recognition that something in us could be very uncomfortable. And what Plato and other teachers want to say is, oh, not just uncomfortable, but if you try to force a transformative experience for which you are not prepared, Mm -hmm. it will either not deliver everything it could have or it will leave you traumatized. It's potentially Mm -hmm. something that can leave you quite shaken. Uh, You're not ready for the identity shift. Oh, yeah, Um, definitely. What what have you been thinking about and writing about? I mean, I know some of it, some part I'm asking as a, look at me asking. (laughs) I told you to ask. What could it be? (laughs) But, but of course, I've read some of it, but just right now in the moment, what what have you been thinking about? What is interesting to you? Yeah, I've been thinking about about, uh, transformative experiences and, uh, I mean, specifically ones that really flip your worldview or uh, cause you to question um, yeah, how you see reality and how you interact with it and the range of that, because I've, I've not only seen it in myself, but, um, you know, since my transformation, I've met a lot of people who, you know, I've had a lot of old friends reach out to me who I knew from undergraduate or from, you know, I met through my friends when they were in law school or whatever, like, and, you know, we used to party together, but they're reaching out to me now and they've all had like spiritual awakenings and their, their stories are really varied and how open and how long it took for them is all varied. And so I just kind of got interested in that and like, um, what is it for each of us? Because for some people, it takes a really long time to set, you know, it is kind of like it knocks on your door and you can just keep ignoring it sometimes for as long as you want, if it's a subtle knock, but sometimes for some people, it's not, it's like um, an energetic experience, like a Kundalini awakening or something. And then in those cases, you can't just ignore it, you know, Um, or you could try, but you know, something is physically going on with you. So you have to, um, usually these people, you know, try to figure out what's going on with them and it's take, and they come up against, uh, an explanation that doesn't have a foundation in their uh, understanding of reality or in their worldview. And a lot, so, so some people like that have reached out to me just because of my book. And I'm like, I'm blown away by these stories because they'll be like, Oh, you know, I was like a conservative. I was a whatever. I was this or that. And then, you know, I didn't believe in any of this stuff, but then I had a Kundalini awakening and my whole, you know, and then they kind of, uh, it was interesting to hear people the range of, um, oh, I accepted it and I went into it. And then other people being like, I thought I was crazy. I thought I had schizophrenia. I lost all my friends and family, you know, like it just was so widely varied. And I was thinking about it in context of the psychedelic renaissance happening because, um, 
last year I had a really powerful psychedelic experience where, you know, I, I had read the entire literature. I had done psychedelics before I, I was, I had already had a spiritual awakening. My worldview had already been flipped. So there wasn't, I didn't think there was much less, like much more that could shock me or whatever, but um, that was naive. So, yeah, I mean, I had an experience that was very just deeper than I diff. I, mean, I don't even know how to say it. Like it was so much outside of the purview of what I could have imagined I could experience. It wasn't negative, but it was just, it, it didn't have to be <laughs> just the fact that I could experience something. It was like going into 3d and then coming back into 2d and that just that experience uh, was so shocking that uh, I mean, it really uh, untethered me for a while, not in a, not in a like, a, cra a crazy way, but just a, my understanding of reality was a little like, whoa, really? Like, what do we live in? Like, what is this? Like, mm. really? You know, like I started to feel that instead of just thinking about it intellectually. Mm. Um, I my my feeling of reality was shaken, and it it wasn't again. It wasn't negative. It was just such an interesting experience for me but i kept thinking about afterward like how prepared i even thought i was but that with the psychedelic renaissance and i'm a, i'm a big supporter of psychedelics and the renaissance but i just started thinking what about these people that are going to go in for depression uh you know and they're from the midwest or they come from like conservative communities and they're going to have an experience like I had, or even worse, like there's other experiences you could have where, um, you know, you encounter an entity or you encounter the divine or you encounter something that that questions your, or you, you know, come to understand that consciousness uh, is a, a part of everything. Everything's conscious, the tables, you know, and there've been studies recently published looking at this um, saying people who take psychedelics, at least in the West, or at least in these studies that have come out, they tend to have more non-physicalist beliefs so more more belief in reincarnation more belief that consciousness is fundamental that consciousness doesn't die with death of the physical body like people tend to believe these things when they come out um of psychedelic experiences and a large number of people and so i just started thinking about like what is going to happen when these people come out it like you know of course idealist me is like oh cool great we're gonna like flip all these people and they're gonna be uh you know be non-physicalist but then I, but then my heart breaks for them, like going back to their communities where they're going to be so different. Sorry, I'm getting emotional about it. <laughs> like, they're going to be so different from everyone and like lonely because who will understand what they've been through? Hmm. So I guess I'm like a little worried about that. Um, even though I think, you know, in the end, I'm sure everything will be fine, but I, I just, it does psychedelics. Um, and that's a choice. They can bring loneliness because they give you this experience that you, uh, first of all, can't put into language. Um, and sometimes it's hard to find other people, you know, you have to find like a community of people who've, who've had that experience, but then also there's people who've more people than ever have had spiritual awakenings. Also, um, there was like a, not that recent, but it was like 2009 Gallup poll or something. Um, and compared to the sixties, it showed that the number of people who've had, um, some sort of like, you know, spiritual awakening or emergence has based, you know, doubled, like it's a large percentage. So it seems like more, this is happening to more and more people, you know, because of the introduction of Eastern 
philosophies and cultures and spiritual traditions into the West. And then now with psychedelics, um, you kind of see this, this starting to happen. And it's just, it, it can be ontologically shocking for people when they have some sort of sudden experience, right? Some sort of moment in time, transformative experience. Um, you know, those are the kinds of things that no matter how much you're prepared, you're never prepared because you cannot imagine what it's like. Uh, you have to experience it to know. And so um, I've just been thinking about that a lot because it seems like that's where we're headed and I don't have answers to it. I just like, I don't know. I just kind of think it's an interesting thing that we should probably start thinking about now ahead of time and like how to support people. Cause I went to look in the literature to see, was there, you know, is there any, um, research on like, if someone has a spiritually transformative experience or even after psychedelics, after you've had a world flip worldview flipping experience, then what <laughs> do you start, you know, how does your daily life change? How does your relationship with the people in your life change? Um, you know, what changes for you and is it, positive or negative and what kind of resources you know did you have or wish you had that helped you through it and that research is just starting to be done there's been so little of that research it's like not funded at all there's just a handful of papers um and there's just a few people that i know that are working on it um which is a great start but yeah it's gonna take a while to do so I just started thinking about that. Like, well, what resources are we going to need to help people get yeah. through these? Yeah. Well, there's, gosh, again, there's so much in what you're saying. One of the things, to say it again, part of what Plato was trying to tell us is the medicines aren't going to do it by themselves because what you bring to them is going to determine what they can do with you. And one of the people who looked at this, of course, is Rick Strassman, classically, because he was he was administering the psychedelic and then asking, how do we make sense of it? What would you do with it in your life? And his view was, well, these people had powerful spiritual experiences, but they would, none of them, and, and, and these were, <laughs> he was giving people high doses at the, at the top end, and his conclusion was none of them were visionary experiences. You know, there's a distinction to be made. You can have a big experience. It can feel really wonderful. But to what degree can it really inform your life and the life of your community? And he turned to his own tradition and uh, said, well, in the Jewish tradition, which he had been disconnected from, but he returned to it and said, well, in this tradition, you had to be trained to have a visionary experience. But when you had them, then you could inform the culture as a whole. It's very similar that, you know, people can take, and Ram Das found this out, right, that you can take all kinds of LSD and you're not going to come to your community with the kind of information that Buddha had just by sitting down under a tree. I mean, Buddha comes back and says, let me explain to you, this is how the mind works, this is where suffering comes from, this is how you can train your mind, this is the potentials it has, and he goes through and gives you all this information that then shapes entire cultures. Whereas most of the time we're, you know, we're taking these medicines and we're thinking we're having a big experience, but that's because the context is so anemic now. And I also do believe that that's part of what Plato and Socrates were trying to say. Look, people have, because compare the difference too, that to go through the mysteries, you would prepare for a year to go mm -hmm. through the mysteries. 
And they're looking around at their culture and saying, but how, why do we have such knuckleheads running the place? You know, they, I saw this guy at the Mysteries and look at what he's doing. He's a tyrant, <laughs> you know. So, it, it, and so they were trying to say you have to be able to be prepared to receive that information mm -hmm. because if it comes so fast that you can't process it, then you're also you're going to feel like it was big. But that just means it was overwhelming to the mm -hmm. ego. And then what will you do with it? How will you be able to help your community with it? And then the most important thing those medicines show us is, I think part of what you were saying is, they just show us that there's more than we thought. And that the, the wisdom traditions are saying, yeah, you, all the stuff you can do on shrooms, you can do without it. And the best thing they can teach you is that your mind's more powerful than you realize, and then we'll show you how you can do that without those medicines. Yeah. So all of those things are at stake. But then there's the deep thing that you're talking about. Um, this uh, It's a wonderful word. It's, uh, for those of you who listen to Dangerous Wisdom, ontological shock has come up before. <laughs> it's a delightful word to throw out on the first date. I've been thinking a lot about ontological shock. <laughs> uh, and really, have you? Yes. Yes, I'm very deep. What is ontological shock? Well, I've only just started listening to Dangerous Wisdom. So Mona, tell us what ontological shock is which is an important yeah well the funny thing is i was just on a call before that where we jumped on and my yeah. friend and i were talking about i mentioned it again and he was like you know it's funny but it's coming up in the media because of the uh uap ufo disclosures <laughs> they start so it's like now that this word ontological shock has hit the mainstream which is funny oh, but yeah cool. it's basically like when you're the way that you understand reality, right? We all interact with the reality and then we make sense of it, right? We put it in context in our minds and our worldview or whatever. And ontological shock is kind of when you come up against something that is like in, in contrast or clashes with that you cannot really, you can't explain and it shocks you, right? Because you don't have a framework for it in your mind. Um, in a lot of times, and actually what's also interesting is how people deal with it. Cause sometimes uh, in our brains, if we don't have like a framework for something and someone mentions something you don't understand, you don't even hear it, right? Like sometimes, and so you don't, it doesn't process cause it, you don't know it. So it bounces off. And sometimes with ontological shock, usually, I mean, um, it, that's why, again, I said it depends, uh, on the person because, and their past experiences and their, you know, uh, characteristics and all that. But uh, some people will be like, it's too much and they will just have to deny it because they cannot, they don't feel safe. They, it's too much contrast and some other people cannot let it go. Right. And the black, like, I need to understand what happened yeah. and what I saw and what I experienced. But yeah, yeah. it's coming up against that. Um, yeah. Uh, some, something that you're perceiving is clashing with your, your, fundamental understanding of reality. Yeah, the ontology, ontology is an old Greek word, and the idea is that there's a beingness that, that we, we think of as the very being of reality, like just what it basically is, what really is. And so an ontological shock is a shock about the, the very nature and the kind of primal level of, wait a second, what I thought was real isn't real, or what I thought couldn't be real might be. And this really can freak the system out. And this can become, again, traumatizing for people. And that's why mm -hmm. preparation for working with these medicines is is important. Because the, the other thing that's going to happen inevitably, the wisdom traditions teach us, is that we're going to have variations of spiritual materialism. And what spiritual materialism means is that any idea, any practice, any medicine, uh, any politics can be used to deepen and perpetuate 
uh, structures of bondage and, and aggression both inside of us and outside of us rather than liberating us, even if that's their intention or their potential. So if a psychedelic medicine could liberate or if a philosophy of a certain kind could, is intended to liberate you, that doesn't mean that your ego will not find ways to quickly batten down the hatches, right? Because when there's a big thing that happens, the first thing the ego wants to do is just start to wait a second to get back under control. And then it will spin a story that it's comfortable with, but our real life in the world won't necessarily change. And so I think, I, I think we see that. You mentioned ayahuasca. And mm-hmm. I certainly think we see that with all the ayahuasca tourism because mm-hmm. we're not... The vine might be calling some people to the rainforest, but I suspect it's not to have a trip. I imagine it's because the rainforest is at, at stake the rainforest is at risk, but most of what we're doing with ayahuasca is further degrading ecologies. Mm-hmm. And so it's such a weird thing where, you know, like, can we hear what wants to come through? It's another good example, because, for instance, if the psychedelic wants to tell you, okay, look, you know, your job is stupid and you need to find something else to do, but you're terrified, or the capitalism mm-hmm. is ridiculous, you, we right. need to find a better system. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So in the little research that I did find on on this, that came up. So there was like, um, there is a um, organization, maybe the American Center for Spiritual Transformative Experiences or something. I think that's what it's called. Um, And they have, yeah, they have like a kind of categories or like things that can happen if you have had one. And that was one of them was like clashes between these like new spiritual values that you have acquired through your experience. um, And then your, your life, right? Like the job you have or your values, what, and the the values you've shared with the people in your community and like yours have shifted suddenly. And so, yeah, those things that like, and that's, what's really interesting about these experiences in my opinion is you have this like beautiful, uh, a lot of positive aspects to it. Like, Oh, now I appreciate nature. Now I understand that relationships are the most important thing, service to others. You know, I've connected to the spiritual aspect. And then you have the difficult side of that, which is if you're not (laughs) surrounded by that as well, you can come into clash with your old self, your old life. And, you know, the the tension to like move through that um, Mm -hmm. is it can be very challenging. Yeah. And for you, the shift, it's interesting, There, in a way, because it, it could have been, you know, it might have been that you were walking down the street and, and had, you know, um, a road to Damascus moment, and, you know, the, the divine appeared to you and strikes you. To, but, but it really, in a way, it's interesting that it kind of begins in a coffee cup, right? I mean, it's not a bit, it's not this, it gave you a, a little bit of the ontological zing, because you didn't believe what could happen. But maybe, I know you've shared this story a million times, but, but for people, I, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting in part because of the fact that it's not such a, oh, I took mm-hmm. a heroic, quote-unquote, yes, yeah. heroic dose of yeah, psychedelic. Yeah. So you were drinking yeah. what my family would just call coffee, because I'm Greek. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I know in different parts of the yeah. world, some people call it Turkish, some people call it Armenian. Yes. Okay, yeah. so this is sludgy coffee. Yes, yeah. It's like a right, you keep the grounds in the cup. So when you drink the watery part of the coffee, the grounds stay in the cup and then you flip it over, let it dry, and pictures emerge and people can intuitives or whoever can read it. So my grandmother used to be very good and my mother reads or has been reading for our family and she would read for me and I you know, didn't really believe it, but 
I, you know, because my mother's a bonding thing every Sunday, why not? I mean, if she would offer it, I would never say no. But yeah, she was very good. I mean, and it took me a very long, I mean, it took me like 10 plus years to like really accept it. <laughs> but um, she was more right than she was wrong. Like she would just know things that uh, there's no way that she could know. And, you know, I took copious notes and I did all my stats and all my neuroscience. And I was like, I don't know how it works, but it works. And um, it, it wasn't, it, it, I just lived in cognitive dissonance. Like I couldn't uh, explain it, but I accepted it. Um, and it didn't cause problems in my life, right? It didn't like impinge until it, she predicted really emo- two really emotional events in my life, which one was the death of a professor that I had worked with. And uh, one was the ending of a relationship. And so um, though the, the death one really shook me, uh, I would say even more so than the second event. But the second event was like uh, the tipping point just because I was uh, emotionally and existentially in turmoil already. Mm-hmm. Um, but the death really shook my, that was like, I was in ontological shock a little bit for a while after that because I just couldn't understand how someone's death it like could be known ahead of time. Like yeah. I had a really hard time with that. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's very existential. I mean, that's the part of the ontological shock when we feel that like there's something about our, our being, our personal being at being at stake once the being of reality is at stake. It's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, that um, how, so you were getting this sort of tap. Okay, these things are right. These things are right. For some reason, one of the things that came to mind is that when I uh, uh, I was living in London and I went to this uh, bookstore and um, I found out that a guy was uh, a journalist, a, a London journalist, was there to launch his book on Yuri Geller, the famous psychic. Mm-hmm. And And so this guy... He's he's there, and he uh, he says, "Look, uh, spoon bending is just real." And I talked to U.S. military. He says, "I, I interviewed people in the U.S. military, and they said that they w- used to have spoon bending parties." So if, if it, for anybody who's not familiar, Yuri Galabit was a famous psychic, and one of the things he could do is he could, do, and this is how he supposedly discovered his psychic abilities. He was eating soup, and the the, the spoon just bent, uh-huh. and and he was just a little boy when this happened. So then he realized he could do this on command, and so he could hold a spoon and 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 he could just sort of touch it, and the spoon could bend. Now, magicians of all kinds, James Randi and others, and you even mentioned Hyman, who uh, is very critical, but also was a magician like Randi. That's how they got connected as skeptics. Uh, they can make spoons bend. Now, I was a magician when I was a little kid, so I know how it's done too. But uh, So this guy was saying, no, but it's real. And he said, now, I talked to people in the military, and uh, they would say, well, it's not like we ever figured out how to get somebody to bend a tank. But the reason why we would take some of our elite soldiers, like we're talking Green Berets, people, we would take them, we would bring them to a spoon bending party is just to show them that they don't know everything that they think they know. That reality itself, let alone situations on the battlefield, can be extremely surprising. And it was just to give them that little taste of ontological shock. And then what was funny is that... um, through a weird circumstance, I didn't know he was going to, Yuri Geller was going to be there. I didn't know the guy was going to be the launching his book. But Yuri Geller came to the book launch and was in, in the audience. And, and uh, then he spoke for a few minutes. And then uh, the, the journalist says, does anybody have a spoon? 
thinking that, of course, anyone who would come knows about Yuri Geller and probably... Yeah. I was the only person in the audience who just randomly had a spoon on me. Oh and that's gosh. because of an artist I dated randomly. This is like a weird oh. random story. But I had been dating this artist, and she accused me of being very functional. And so we were in a coffee shop at the time that she said that. And I said, oh, yeah? What function does it serve to throw the spoon into my backpack? And I had just left this spoon in my backpack for like a year. And I <laughs> knew that it was in there. And so I said, well, I've got a spoon. I reached in and here's the spoon that I had thrown in as a joke. And Yuri Geller walked right over to me, right in front of me, and held the spoon. Now, again, I, was, I, I did magic as a kid. I, I'm happy to admit I was a little magic nerd. And he just, like, stroked that spoon and I watched it bend. And there was no sleight of hand. It, it, it wasn't even an attempt at sleight of hand. I handed yeah. it to him. It was clean. But yeah. it's just so interesting how you could see something like that and then actually just go, wow, that was really crazy, and walk away. Yes, exactly. And so you were, you were getting tapped constantly, like, yeah. gosh, my mom is right. Look at me being yeah. a neuroscientist, and I'm trying to track this, and I don't have any explanation. Yeah, whatever. But yeah. Then, then something had to step in to kind of take hold yeah. of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, to shock. Yeah, really. Yeah, even after the death, I... And what, it's actually interesting. The, with the death, um, I was scared. And right. that was part of why I didn't want to think about it because it right. scared me too much. And, um, and then I, so I did ignore it. I was just freaked out by it. And I thought, I, well, I don't know, but I'm not going to look into this. And I was also very busy. So it just worked out that way. But then, the, and then the next time, um, the, the, then the next time I was too curious, then I got curious. Then I thought, yeah. well, you know what? <laughs> this yeah. is weird. And there was a there's a broken openness when our heart breaks of of, oh, what, yeah. of whatever kind. There's you know like right. I mean Rumi even describes that as a kind of the mm -hmm. broken openness that leads to spirituality because we have to feel like sometimes yeah. we have to to reach a kind of bottom of the barrel in some way because otherwise it it's it, it is easy to write off and it's un, you, you're something in you like you could say the unconscious parts of the ego that do control our experience in ways that we're not aware of, th that part of you knew that it was going to be uncomfortable to have to sit through all that. Like it, it oh, could foresee yeah. you on the floor going, I'm an idiot, everyone's going to yeah. think I'm stupid, right? Yeah. And so to be able to go through that, it's it's just so interesting. I think I think it's just... Yeah, so that's, that's very, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, it's... Um... I mean, I knew, I knew, I, you're unconsciously for sure, but even consciously, yeah. <laughs> I knew it yeah. would be hard and it would be, and just in terms of how my life, uh, went, uh, it was much more convenient actually for it to happen when it did, because when, um, I think right when I was in the middle, when I decided to start the project was when, was when COVID hit and we had the lockdown and not having to, you know, drive to the office and do the work nine to five in the office, uh, allowed me to have more, you know, flexibility with my schedule and, and just have more time in the day right. to do those interviews, like uh, during off work hours. So, you know, that, that worked out because otherwise my schedule was so insane. Like before mm. COVID, I worked more than nine to five. So it would, I would have had no time or energy to do that. Yeah, because in LA, everything's a commute, first of all, yeah. like you go to the grocery store as a commute. But, um, that, in general, I mean, I do think this is part of how the pattern of insanity perpetuates itself because uh, John Maynard Keynes, it, it's not that long ago when he was saying, oh, yeah, you know, by the beginning of the 21st century, the people are going to work 15 hours a week. Now, why didn't that happen? And, yeah, and you can not? have all sorts of explanations, but is it in part that the immune system of the pattern that we're trapped in says, no, if these people have free time, who knows what they'll pay attention to? 
Right. So it's yeah, very con- convenient to be too busy to turn toward the mysterious because if the mysterious calls you into a different view of reality and your place in reality than what is comfortable in the system that needs you to degrade it and treat it as matter that doesn't matter, mm-hmm. then, you know, it's much better to be busy. Yeah, and it's... Well, yeah, and the busier you are, the less mi- you can think about how miserable you are, um, <laughs> which is what I was in, yeah. uh, the situation I found myself in. And uh, and I think a lot of people did. And then when you were suddenly had to sit at home quarantined, you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is great to have extra time in my day. And I'm doing all the same work I did in the office. Why do I need to be there? And like, in fact, I would do more work because nobody would come interrupt you know, and right. talk to me and waste right. my time. So, um, yeah, I agree. And <laughs> It's complex, isn't it? Because on the one hand, what would be great is if we, we had, this is what's so interesting about Bateson's work and understanding mind as an ecology. In a healthy ecology of mind, the person coming to interrupt you actually becomes a source of inspiration. And of course, that does happen even in ordinary offices. That's why Steve Jobs designed, you know, famously right. designed Apple the way he did. I mean, I don't see Steve Jobs as a visionary, but but he did understand that, that, that you had these chance encounters. Chomsky talks about that in the building he was at at MIT, where he said, you know, like across the right. halls, an astrophysicist, yeah. you know, what yeah. uh, we'd otherwise never talk. That's right. But you're right that, that again, a, a part of what the way our ecologies function is to constrain that in a certain way so that a lot of things are simply interruptions. It's so interesting that this, the, the way the crazy has to be a self-sustaining event or process. It has to keep itself, you know, or else who knows what comes out of it. You know, yeah. And I've always, I've always, um, I've always thought about work and um, our economy, and I mean, I'm not an economist, so I don't understand anything. But you know, like, I've always thought about it a lot. And and I never resonated, none of it resonated with me ever, I always had trouble, uh, existentially, which is why I think like, just every year that went by, this like thing was building up inside of me of just like, really no better way to describe it than it was so out of resonance with me, like it, it hurt me to like go in and like conform to these uh these stupid rules that we have to do or like just to be in the office or just to attend or you know just I don't know just all the stupid things we had to do and um for me quarantine was great because it finally was a chance to break and you know like look at that and and sit with a different reality and and just be like this is um this this is how not that that is how it should be. There should definitely be more balance between the two. But yeah, yeah, just that, that there there should be a different way. Yeah, that's so interesting, too, that just to be open enough to our own suffering. And because I often say, too, that, there, I mean, there are two things going on. One is, can we be open enough and honest enough about our own fear of what reality might be like, the parts that we're, we're not sure about? Because th- that is, a, that's, a common response that people will have to an ontological shock, even people who are looking for it or are interested. And past episodes on that, William James, who was very interested, he describes being shaken to his core, absolute terror at being exposed to a broader reality. And this was a person who was really interested in it. Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer talks about that too, that it, you know, in one case of having a kind of psychic experience, she was fine with it. But in another case, it, it really, the ontological shock was there and it caused terror. Mm-hmm. And it happens again and again. But then the other part is having enough 
sensitivity to our suffering in general to recognize that we really aren't happy and that something in us wants a different world than the one because we're not really intending to perpetuate mm -hmm. ecological destruction and injustice and inequality. Our participation in it then almost comes with a guilt. We're like, well, every day of my life I'm doing things right, that yeah. really it's not like mm -hmm. I want to do that, but I am doing it. Yeah, right, yeah. It, um, I, oh, you said something and I wanted to, oh no, but it's slit, just slipped my mind. That's okay. But it was, might come back. What, what were you talking about just before this? I don't know. <laughs> you mean before, <laughs> before, before I just uh, talked about the fear and the suffering in us? Or? Oh, oh, I remember. I remember. Yeah, okay, okay. It was this. Um, so there was this paper that was just published, um, about challenging psychedelic experiences, but, um, that yeah. showed that, uh, so like I said, this is the research that's starting to be done of like the more longer term outcomes and like, what are the challenging things and, you know, are there persistent, um, perceptual changes or, uh, emotional changes or, so there was, this paper came out and they did a nice job of, of, uh, you know, laying out what are the, the drugs that causes, how long do these usually last? What are the things? But what was really interesting was that they then asked the participants, um, you know, did you find it to be like a positive, meaningful experience in the end? And um, of all the people who reported that, I think it was like 85 or 89 percent said it was like a like a in the end, it was a meaningful, positive experience, even though it was challenging. Um and then half of them, I think, said that they would do psychedelics again. So half, right. I think half said they wouldn't. It was a pretty large number that wouldn't um, or that like have no plans to do it again right now. Um, but half would. But the, the 80 to 90 percent that found it meaningful, I think, highlights something really interesting uh, that I'm noticing, too, in our culture of, you know, like Western culture is very. I mean, even though there is a lot of like. um you know, stuff in pop culture about resilience. But when it comes to stuff like the idea behind, oh, if you have a challenging um, psychedelic experience, like it can be positive for you. Like I think in medicine, there's a lot of fear around um, about, around that kind of thing. So like in the psychedelic space, there's a lot of, you know, conversation around like, well, how do we prevent challenging experiences? But then like in the new medical framework but in the old like the people who've been you know like stan groff uh who studied lsd psychotherapy from the 50s or you know through the 70s until it was banned they're like uh hello the challenging experiences are the best ones for people like when people work through it those end up being the most meaningful and the most healing for people and then and the, but in western culture you have this like no protection of like from anything negative um you know like let's protect you from triggers and let's protect you from this challenging experience and you know to some extent i get it because again like we're talking about like it can be really deeply upsetting <laughs> like to have a worldview flip or to whatever happens in psychedelics right like face the devil in hell or whatever you get trapped in the um the cycle of existence or whatnot but um what's actually valuable is learning to work through that learning to sit through the experience learn you know learning to breathe through it'll be over, you know, it may not feel like it will the triple end. <laughs> um, and the same with a, a spiritual experience, like it will end and then you will work through, you, you'll find a way to work through what has happened. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think there's not enough of that understanding mm -hmm. that, um, that we can do it. <laughs> like, it's okay. Yeah. We can do it. Like we can make it through. 
Yeah, well, and the how. I mean, this is the issue that the wisdom traditions teach you. I mean, for, for, I would, uh, obviously, they're within a certain, I understand that you were making a kind of contextualized claim. Um, the the challenging experiences are often necessary. They're not necessarily the, the best ones we'll have. But, you, but you're right, the wisdom traditions are saying, don't just go through a challenging experience. Let us teach you how to work with a difficult experience, that that's mm-hmm. what their orientation is. Let us show you how the painful becomes a gateway to liberation, that the bad news, seemingly bad news from the ego standpoint, is actually the good news. How do you make the bad right. news into the good news? And they're saying there are practices. Don't just chance it. Don't just go through the tef- difficult experience because they're saying you'll leave something on the table. Yeah, you'll come out the other side thinking it was good, but there's more if you will let us teach you how to work with it. And, uh, you know, even in the archetypal story of Buddha, you have that, right? Because he has to go through the first thing that happens when he sits under that tree is that he gets confronted with both intense fear and intense craving. Those are the two things, two of the things that happen, right? That Mara launches this massive assault. Um, in addition to tempting him with sensuality. Mm-hmm. So first is the is the craving, the sensuality, and he's able to sit through that, which is seemingly good, but you still have to know how to work with it, and he shows he does work with it. And then comes this huge existential threat. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to destroy you. And he's able to sit through that difficult, and then sit through all of his past lives, which depends on how we want to look at that, right? I mean, you are clearly, you've looked at evidence where you say, man, this is hard to understand if you don't think that we didn't have a past life. And from the Buddhist point of view, they see spiritual progress in general as hard to fully comprehend with unless you do it across lifetimes, because the odds mm-hmm. of being a Buddha this life is slim for most of us. Right. So they feel that that should be, but that means that he had to look at really difficult deaths, really difficult lives mm-hmm. that he went through and, and be able to sit through a lot of difficult things. And that's, in fact, why he developed some of the training that he did, because he had people who he could not just teach them meditation. He had to say, okay, you, you before you do that, can we lay this other foundation so that you know how to work with ex- difficult experiences and, and trauma, what we would call trauma now. Mm-hmm. It's all really good stuff. It's all really exciting. But... I think we've come to the end of our time. So I want to just offer you, are there any final reflections, thoughts, anything else? Um, uh, anything. I know it's, it's always, t- sometimes it's too open-ended. Yeah, but, uh, um, I don't know. I just uh, I just try to stay, oh, I start, try to stay open now to um, ideas. <laughs> so I don't know. I always tell everyone to just stay curious. And it's hard, right? Like yeah. even for me, like um, being on this journey, i would I kept uh, I kept imagining it because like I kept extending my belief box like a box of beliefs and like the you know it's, it would expand out to include more and more and more but I would keep drawing lines and being like okay this is where I'm not willing to cross the line and um, I mean just that experience has helped me understand other people you know and where they're coming from and when they're so resistant. Uh, you know, to something I'm talking about. And I try to just keep that in mind that, um, you know, all you can do is you, you're going to come up against people in their belief boxes and you can't force it open. So just like keep that in mind as you, you know, interact with other people about these things. Yeah. And I think it's it's beautiful. And I'll say again to everybody who's listening or watching, this is a really good book to read because um, Mona just does such a good job at looking at not just one set of phenomena, but a wide range of phenomena. I don't know that I've seen a book that looks at such a wide range and also tries to consider 
the real limitations, the, the real facts on the ground of how science is conducted, that it's affected by larger structures that can constrain it, um, that it's affected by a metaphysical speculation about the nature of reality, and that this is a genuine struggle uh, that other people share, you know, uh, that other scientists have talked about. Jung struggled with this, but this real struggle to not... Um, to not want to look like somebody who's gullible or foolish or simple-minded, and yet to confront evidence. And so you're mm -hmm. consistently looking at evidence that doesn't fit the paradigm. And what am I supposed to do as a scientist if I've got evidence? And that's what I was right. supposed to, the ideal is, yeah. that's what I'm supposed to be looking at. So this is not some tour of metaphysical, further metaphysical speculation. It is evidence against the metaphysical speculation of the, of the d dominant paradigm we have. And I think it's just you did a really wonderful job. It, you know, it's it's accessible, it's it's easy to read, it's fun, and it's a broad sweep of all kinds of cool things from reincarnation to telepathy, remote viewing. It's just really interesting. Yeah, thank you. It was fun to write. Yeah. Not fun to go through, but, but it was fun to write. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I look forward to maybe another dialogue at some point. So, you know, as you, as you yeah, go further absolutely. into some of these things and we can kind of keep in touch and... Yeah, see, see what you're great. into. This was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to all of you for joining in. If you have stories or questions, reflections to share about the nature of mind, the nature of reality, and things that create ontological shock, maybe you've experienced one or know somebody who has, please send it in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of that into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of it.